I want to share from Psalm 57. It's one of the, um, one of my, my favorite things in the Psalms as to how David viewed himself. Because, and this is the essence of what I'm, I'm saying today, um, how we see ourselves is how we live. We can never rise above how we see ourselves. How you imagine yourself to be, and when I say that I mean know yourself to be, uh, that is what will come out in every word you say, and it doesn't matter how many times you say, I'm going to try and do it this way, it is governed by how you see yourself. And um, as I say, I'm fascinated with David because he is the one that went through everything we go through. There's, I, I don't know of anything that is untouched in David's life. He, he's seen it all. And, and he writes a psalm to go with his experience. And he gives a lot away, almost just a toss away by letting us know. So I want to look at Psalm 57, and in verse 7, he says, My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises. Awake, my glory, awake, harp and lyre, I will awaken the dawn I will give thanks to thee, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to thee among the nations. For thy loving kindness is great to the heavens, your truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let thy glory be above all the earth. When, when did he write that and what's it about? Uh, you, you should always try to find that out. Uh, the Psalms are great, but they're even greater when you know when he wrote them. And so if you go to the top of the psalm, before the psalm begins, you'll find that little tiny paragraph, and he tells you who he wrote it for in, in the end when he put it all together as a book, and um, the tune it was set to, and it says he wrote it when he fled from Saul in the cave. Now there's a, there's a lot there. When he fled from Saul... In the cave. And you know, there's a difference between a cave and the cave. Um, he wrote it. What, what's that context? The context is <clears throat> that after he brought Goliath down, remember he was about 15 years old at that time, and, he, and, and all the people began to sing songs about him. You might say they, they wrote pop songs. Um, and it was all about David and how great he was. And um, one of the songs that somebody wrote who didn't have too much sense, they, they in the song they compared him to King Saul and said, and I'll paraphrase, that King Saul is, is a very good fellow, but oh, you should meet David. You know, and it didn't go down well with Saul. And um, Saul was a very unsure king he was a man with a gazillion problems and he, he's he's not going to make it anyway and so when david came along david became the scapegoat saul is saying i would be a great king if he hadn't interrupted you know he he's the one that's thrown everything off 
but he couldn't do anything about it because David was so popular. And so he, he lets it go on. And um, David marries his daughter. And so now he's in the royal family. And um, that didn't go down too well either uh, because now it's, it's in your face and the two men are listening to the same songs and they're right here facing each other. And um, it came to the point where Saul entered into great depression. He was uh, manic depressive. And in that, David could play on his guitar and just bring him back to, to normality. But on one such occasion, Saul grabbed his spear and hurled it at, at David. And it's amazing. It was one of those God things he missed. But I don't know if you know that King Saul was a Benjaminite. That is, he came from the family of Benjamin, and they were noted for their ability to be always right on target. They could throw a sword, they could throw a, an arrow, a spear, a stone even, and they never missed. Well, this Benjaminite threw his spear to kill David, and he missed. But David jumps up and runs for his life. And there are psalms that he wrote at that time how he finally escaped by climbing out of his house window, letting himself down and running off into the darkness. It's a fascinating story. Some of you will remember back in the 1970s, I did a long series on all the Psalms and what David was doing when he met them, called him making of a man of God. But um, he, he went into the wilderness and he knew the wilderness. He'd been a shepherd boy there for, he knew every twist and turn of the wilderness. And he ran away from Saul, who followed him with what today we might call a SWAT team. They're, they're, they were the special ops. They, they were going to get this man. Well, this man was only around 20 years old at that time. And he goes, and he goes to the cave. Well, there was only one, the cave and it was called Adullam the cave of Adullam which was not only a cave but it had many passages it was a honeycomb and so David could go in there and hide and soldiers could be at one end he could be at the other and they didn't meet each other it was but it's in the wilderness and if you can imagine sleeping on the cave floor and and the the light comes in, the, the first rays of the sun come in, and you wake up, and you know how it happens. The very first minutes of waking, it, it just comes in on you. Everything that's happened, happening, what's going to happen today, it's like suddenly a pack of dogs jump on your bed and try to lick you all at once, and 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 here everything that's happening to him comes. And he picks up his psalm, and he writes Psalm 57. He's desperately alone. There's not a person he knows who's fighting for him. No one dares speak against the king. He's got the SWAT team on his heels. He doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know how anything is going to work out. 
He's a man in absolute confusion in one sense. Samuel had come when he was the kid on the farm. And if you remember that story, had pulled him out from all his brothers and anointed him with a whole flagon of oil and said, you're the next king of Israel. Well, okay, I'm the next king of Israel. And I'm surrounded by animals and spiders and everything else. Um, I don't stand a chance. I'm sleeping on the rock of the floor of the cave. And I, I don't know if today's going to be the day when Saul gets me. And he writes Psalm 57. And at the end of it, he said, I will, well, before that, in verse 8, he said, Awake my glory, awake my harp, I will awaken the dawn. That is, he said, as the light is coming through and all the crazy thoughts are crashing in my head, I am going to take my guitar and I'm going to shout my praise to God. But he addresses himself. He talks, he does, he often talks to himself. Um, if you remember Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul. He's taken him by the shirt collar and saying, you will bless the Lord, O my soul. Well, on this occasion, he speaks to himself and he says, awake my glory. And some of your more modern translations translate that as my soul, which I think is a rather pathetic thing. There's two different words in Hebrew. Uh, Glory is kabod and soul is nefesh. Well, how did you get those mixed up? Um, I think really that is an attempt of religion to um, keep you in in a, a different mood because you can hardly call yourself my glory when I've been told to say I'm unworthy, I'm no good. Um, no, the two don't go together. So they, they get it all nice and soft and say, my soul. Um, that is so vague, no one knows what he's talking about. But um, my glory. He addresses himself as my glory. And he speaks to himself and says, awake, my glory. Yes, it's morning. The sun is beginning to shine through the cave mouth. Well, I'm taking over here. I'm saying, I will awake. And so wake up, kid. Wake up. Only he calls himself, wake up, my glory. We are going to welcome this day, not with the tirade of all the misery I'm going through, but I'm going to bring in it the reality of what God is doing. Um, so So here he is, a man with... No earthly glory. You could hardly look at him and say, I mean, to say he, he was in a pair of cut-off jeans running for his life, a dirty T-shirt, probably himself not had a bath or a shower, uh, and he's hungry and, you know, the rest of it. No earthly glory. You look at that, what's he talking about? He's got no recognition. The only recognition he has is in the post office, one most wanted men. And, um, and no one knows him at this point, really. I mean, they, they know him historically as when he, he got rid of Goliath, but that was a few years ago. And right at this minute, the only one who thinks of David every hour is Saul. And David has no army. Saul has the army. Saul has the SWAT team. He's got nothing. It's just David and David. He's here. 
No, nobody. And his family is not the best. Um, there's a lot of question marks over his family. There's a lot of question marks where he came from. Um, certainly his father had no time for him. If you remember that other story when Samuel came to, Samuel said, I know God told me the next king of Israel is in this family. So Jesse, the, the father, he brings all the sons, big, strong, strapping chaps. And um, Samuel looks at them and says, no, you've got another son. Well, so another son. Yeah, he, he's up in the hills. We don't, you know. And they had to go and fetch David down. He was the runt of the pack at best. Um, and when he goes to deal with Goliath, do you remember the conversation between him and his brothers? He, he comes to, he wants to know how's the battle going and what's happening. And his brothers say, oh, you, what are you doing here? And it's all recorded, a very personal sort of conversation. And um, one of the brothers says, you, you've left the sheep. You, you should go back, look after the sheep. Don't know what you're doing here. You're too young to be here. And David's response, which is recorded, I'm not, listen, I'm not storytelling now. This is there. He, he, he looked at him and says, what have I done now? You know, some of us have been in families like that. You can never do anything right. Well, what have I done now? I came bringing you gifts. I came, dad wanted me to come and ask him. And all you do is bitch me and say, get back to the sheep. That was his family. And then later on, very short time after what we're looking at here, his family left and went to live in Moab, which was the next country over. Why did they do that? Because they wanted nothing to do with this son of theirs who was bringing nothing but the rage of Saul upon everybody's head. So let's go and... So and he, David, again, wrote Psalm 27 at that time. And he said, When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. But he's alone. And his brothers at this point are in no way with him. They they don't want to know him. They don't want Saul to know they're his brothers. He's alone, as alone could be. Of course, he had no money, so he, he can't finance anything. And yet, uh, please get this, he sat there on the stone floor of the cave, which is not a good place to be sitting, and he's probably hungry, and he's got a guitar, and he identifies himself. This is who I am. My glory. That's my core self. All this is taking place around me. But I am my glory. That was a contradiction to everything that you could call common sense. Total contradiction. It's a contradiction of his physical experience. I don't identify glory with sitting on the floor of a cave. Um, and, and yes, afraid. I mean, he's a human being. He's afraid. He, he's, in fact, he would almost describe it as a spider's web of fears that have come around him. And the, the people are, are like a great spider. They're coming to get him. Um, the, the feelings of what is happening to him, that his every sense is giving him a report on what's happening. Everything's against him. And logic, logic, you don't stand a chance. You're one man, and the whole of the government 
is looking for you, and everybody that might be with you is now scared of the government doesn't want to know you. That's logic. And the indifferent family. But David, and hear me now, David never looked at the happenings around him. He never looked at the feelings he had to give himself his identity. Maybe I should shut up there and just keep yeah. repeating that for the next hour. Um, where, where do we get our identity? Who am I? And 90% and of human beings, they get that who am I from their job. You, you, you ask a person, who are you? And they'll probably respond with, I'm, I'm an accountant. I'm, they, they immediately go to what they do. Whereas identity is who you are. Yeah. And it's because of who I am is what I do. But people miss it. In fact, many people will absolutely break down and cry if you push them to say, who are you? Yeah. I've done that. Yeah. And I didn't do it on purpose. But the more I pushed the person, I said, I'm not asking you what you do. I'm asking you, who are you? Who is that person? that drives the car that lives in the house. And when it dawned on them what I was saying, they just didn't know who they were. Yeah. And they broke down. They, they, it was a terrible time. David never once, he will report his feelings. That's why we love the Psalms. Yeah. He, he tells us the truth of how he feels. He'll report the logic of a human being in terms of his circumstance. Reports everything about him. But then he says, but this is who I am. Where, where did he get itself? In the New Testament, talks very specifically about this in James, the epistle of James chapter 1, verse 22. And I'll take time. I'm going to read it slowly because it's so important. And he's talking about prove yourself doers of the word not merely hearers. That becomes very important. He, he said, what you hear, what you see and read, don't say how interesting. Go do it and become it. But just put on. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and remember that ultimately in the scripture, the word is Jesus. Yeah. It's only in the last uh, hundred or so years that the fundamentalists have said the word is the Bible. Um, you don't, don't ever miss out. Jesus is the word. And when it, it speaks of the word in the New Testament, primarily it's speaking of Jesus. And if you come to this book, you go there to meet with Jesus, not the words of a book. And... Um, so he is saying, essentially, if you've had a, the beginnings of a revelation of who you really are, you're a hearer of the word. And if you hear that word and don't do anything about it, he says, that is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. And once he has looked at himself and gone away, he immediately forgets what kind of person he is. But one who looks intently 
at the perfect law, the law of liberty. That's the gospel. That's the totality of who Jesus is and what Jesus is in our lives. And it's called the law of, that is the law of liberty. It's the law of total freedom. The law is not the law of Moses. This is the law that sets us free. You look in the law of liberty and abide by it, do it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. That man will be blessed in what he does. Now, I, I believe that a better translation of that is in the Mirror Bible. And if you were at the retreat, the guy who translates the Mirror Bible flew from South Africa to be there. And uh, that was something. But he, he translates this. Give the word your undivided attention. Do not underestimate yourself. Make the calculation. There can only be one logical conclusion. Your authentic origin is mirrored in the word. The difference between a mere spectator who hears it and walks away and a participator is that both of them hear the same voice perceiving its message the face of their own genesis. Now that is the correct Greek language there. Um, well, I won't go into that. Just It's different to what I read before, but this is what it says in the Greek. The face of your own genesis. That is, he says, you look into the word. Look into this gospel where Jesus Christ is that gospel. It's the law of liberty. And you look into it and you see your genesis. What does that mean? Genesis means where you came from. Genesis means the beginning of the introduction. It is in the beginning God created the heaven. That's Genesis, where it all began. Your original parent. You look into the word and you see that original intent as to why God created you, why you're here, which will bring you straight to Jesus. And he says, you, you will see his message. You're, you'll see your face but not merely an exterior, but you'll see where you come from, your parents, the love of God that fashioned you, created you, joined you with Jesus, and says, this is who you are. And he said it will be reflected as in a mirror. And such people, they realize they are looking at themselves. Wow. That's an incredible experience to look and hear the scripture speak to me by the spirit. And I suddenly realized that's me. That they are looking at themselves. But for the one person, it seems just too good to be true. Isn't that the truth? And this person departs back to the old way of seeing himself and immediately forgets what manner of person he is, never giving another thought to the one he saw in the mirror. The other, who's a doer of the word, is mesmerized by what he sees, hypnotized. I mean, can't take his eyes off it. He's captivated by the effect of a law that frees a person from the obligation of the old law of Moses that restricted 
to their own efforts and willpower. No distraction or contradiction can dim the impact of what is seen in the mirror concerning the law of perfect liberty that now frees everyone to get on with the act of living the life of their original design. David, how on earth, how on earth do you say that you are the glory and live singing praise to God in the middle of that situation? How did you do it? He looked in the mirror. He saw himself as was originally intended and he didn't forget. He was mesmerized. He was caught caught in a way that was bigger than everything that happened to him. And so in the middle of all his situations, he becomes a doer of the word. That is me, and I don't care what anyone, anything even suggests that I'm not. That is me. That, that's, that's it, you see. That using yet another part of Scripture, I won't go to it, but it, it says... That is who you are in God's sight. Speaks of God's sight, how God sees you, how God knows you. But would you understand me if I said that is final reality? And when you trust that reality, how God knows me, how God sees me, then that becomes who you are in your own sight. I see myself as God sees me. That is, I see myself in reality. Then that translates into behavior and thoughts and imagination. That's who I am. And it's who I am in every moment, every situation, so, as I often say, that's who I is. It's not just a blanket statement. It is in this moment, in this moment, in this moment. Um, because, you see, you will never, let me say it again, you will never be more than that inner knowing that is joined to his knowing. You never. And you get people in in many religious um, places where, where they're trying to do a good job, they're trying to teach people to be better, but they're presenting moralism. You know, moralism, you know, you should do this, you should do that, you shouldn't. It's all very positive stuff. <coughs> but you can say all of that, say, I'm going to try to do that. But unless you see that this is who you are, You'll never do it. You, you, and you can sweat, you can fast, you can pray, you can, you name it, you can do it, and you'll never do it. You cannot rise, you cannot produce the behavior unless it arises from knowing who you are. And who you are takes my breath away. Who you are does not always agree with my logic. It doesn't always agree with common sense. It doesn't always agree with how I'm feeling right now. But that's who I am. See? And so I, I now live, think the way I think when I'm thinking about myself or thinking about life. Imagine. 
Imagination is massive in the scripture. How do I imagine myself? How do I, how I feel, how I speak, how I hope for the future. All of that goes back to, it starts in knowing who I am. I've looked in the mirror. I've seen my genesis. I've seen where I come from. And I've seen the blueprint that was there when I began. That's who I am. And I, it, then it's a natural. You begin to live in accord with the blueprint. It's a natural. You're not fighting it because that's who you are. Whereas before, when we, we tag on and we say, I'm going to try and do this, I'm going to try and do that, I'll be this kind of person, I'll, I'll stop doing that. Well, say it all you want unless you know it. That's who I really am. Then you begin to see yourself doing that. And then you look back and realize, I did it. It's because you, you're being who you are, you see. My glory. Yes, and in case you're wondering, that's the same word in the Hebrew for the glory of God. Your, your glory, kabod. My glory, kabod, same word. What, what, it's a very difficult word to put into English. It's got so many meaning. The, the beginning word is weight. It's a weight of glory. Paul uses that in Romans 8, the weight of it. Um, when you realize what, what glory is, then that's a weight on your shoulder, a very positive weight. It's a thing thing that um, becoming a president or a king, some they might say it's a weighty business. Or we use the term of an important person. We say he carries a lot of weight around here. It, it, it means authority. It means responsibility. It, it means that when I put my foot down, the footprint is of significance. It's important. I'm not just blowing dust here. You know, it's got a weight. Um, it, it means opinion. It's in that inner opinion that you have of yourself. But it's also the opinions I form of others that become my glory, the way I think of others. Um, it means reputation, track record. It means your honor, your dignity. It actually is another word for applause. When there's an applause in the background, you know, um, it means splendor carries weight and worth, magnificence. Um, but then it also means abundance. It means prosperity. It also means radiance, that light is streaming out from you um, with power. So that translates to, to energy. Um, there's an energy to love. There's an energy to light. People know when you walk in the room. Have you discussed we, we all know about that in the negative. When a person is full of bitterness, uh, when a couple have just had a raging argument and they walk in the room, you know it immediately. There's this energy of darkness. Um, actually, it can actually attach to bricks and mortar. And, and you go into a house where there's been a terrible divorce. Now they've moved out. They're trying to sell their house. If you're aware of these things, it smacks you right in the face as you walk in. There's some terrible thing that's happened here. 
um, it's a real, real energy. That's the, now put that in the positive. The glory means that when you walk in the room, people feel the love of God. They feel kindness. They feel gentleness. Um, and that prosperity, of course, is not mere money. It is, is a person who is content. They are at home in their self. They are satisfied with the satisfaction of Christ in them. They're home. Um, he's saying, this is who I am. It's the very opposite of what it looked like. But he is saying then, in effect, my, my glory. He is saying that this is the glorious heaviness. It's mine. It's upon me. I mean, Saul looks like the king. Saul looks like the most powerful man. He looks like the wealthiest man. But actually, this vagabond sitting in the cave, he, he's the one that can say, it's my glory, my weight, my responsibility. It's my honor, my reputation. It's, it's I'm the one with significance. And I don't have a penny in my pocket, but I am the truly prosperous one. Boy, this is so easy to preach. Yeah, <laughs> yeah live it. Um, it's, it's everything that this world thinks of that can be bought with money. Only of course they can't. But that's the glory of this world system. doesn't matter where you go. The glory of this world system... Um, uh, it's to be earned. It's to be bought. It's, and then, then I get this thing, which is totally exterior. Um, so the world's glory, we hang certain clothes on a people. We're so used to it, we don't think about it, but it's kind of strange. You, you just use people as a walk-in wardrobe in, in order to say, you know, they have glory. I mean, l l look at what's just been happening in the UK, uh, golden chariots and people with enough medals to weigh them down and and all dressed in... What are they trying to do? It's all bling. It's all surface. There's a human being under there that is exactly the same as you. But we're trying to say honor, honor, honor. Glory, glory. It's all exterior. Um, the glory of God in me, in you, which is the final reality, which means everything else is not. It refers to the Holy Trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwell in me, in Christ, in the Spirit, and it is so. And that is beyond, many times, beyond feeling. It's, it's not something that's registered by feeling. It's registered by what God says, and I trust that, you see. And so he can declare that. And it was the way he handled his fears. Did you notice it's in verse 8? The first six verses, he's telling us what's going on around him. And then he sort of spits in his face and says, it's time we woke up, my glory, it's time we address this situation. And how are you going to address it? You're going to give praise to God and you're going to declare who you are in him 
And so this is very, but don't make a formula out of it. But he addressed his fears by giving glory to God and declaring who he really is. And that is, that sounds like a formula, but he addresses his fears as what the fear is trying to say to him does not really exist. That is a massive, in the light of what I said, if my glory is the final reality, then all the fear is trying to give to me another identity. But it's not real. And I'm probably going to say this again, but I'll say it now. God does not believe in the unreal because he is the truth. Think about this. Does God even hear the unreal? How can God hear that which is not true? He doesn't believe in the lie. He doesn't believe in all the voices of anxiety. And it's because I believe in that which is not. I find myself completely unhinged. Of course I am. I am believing in something that doesn't exist. It only exists as a lie. When a lie is told, well, it is reporting something that is not a thing. It is not. Now, solid behavior can be built on that. If you believe the lie, you'll... But that solid behavior is built on nothing. Um, you, you can, if you know how to do it, um, in stocks and bonds and all that world, you can build an entire empire on lies. And it's been done. You can employ nearly a 100,000 people around the world all on a lie. And when someone puts a pin in that balloon, all the solidity to the lie collapses because there was really nothing there at all. That's right. That just happened. Yeah, I see. Now think about it. David is throwing the ultimate reality into the middle of the lie. He said, all that you say, all you're trying to do, I bring my glory to God and my glory is his glory in me. And that's the end of the discussion. That's So declaring what is true contradicts everything that is trying to destroy me in, in my head, in my feelings, my imagination. It collapses it. The darkness, you could say, when I throw reality into the middle of the lie, the lie collapses. It can't, that's putting a pin in the balloon. So, the glory that is his is not an external. It's not all the pomp and ceremony. It's not having yourself driven to walk every morning with a 
chauffeur. It's it's not having the top office. It's it's not getting a million dollars in bonuses. It that's here today, gone tomorrow. It's it's not. Well, you could just add up the whole jolly lot. It's not. That's all exterior. It all happens out here. What real glory is, is internal. And it is united to Christ. What What is the glory of God? We've been there before, but Moses said, show me your glory. God said, I will cause my goodness to pass before you. The glory of God is agape love. The glory of God is goodness, truth. And it's unique to him. It's his I am, complete in himself, unlimited sufficiency, ability, unlimited freedom. And that is so real it produces radiant light. And sometimes it breaks up into a rainbow of colors. Um, we, we were created for this, you see. That's why it says you go back to your Genesis. How, how did you begin? Why did you begin? Why are you here? You were called into being by the love of the Trinity. Creation, you see, is, is not just an explosion of power. Um, much science is, is driven by atheism. It's driven by a must within the heart of the human race that we have to get rid of God. Yeah. The serpent said, I would be as God. Well, I can't be as God as long as God hangs around. And so as far back as you want to go, far long before our scientists ever existed, right back I take you I can take you back to three thousand BC, beyond which we have no history. Interesting, because that's much the date of the flood. But um I won't go there now. Um but you you go back three thousand and and they're doing the religions of Babylon they were evolutionists. All, all the religions of paganism, as far back as you go, they're all evolutionists. Why? I've got to. I've got to have a get rid of God. What's all around? We just sort of happened. And we sort of happened by sort of power. And it's all sort of because I never asked where it came from. So... You know, there, there was a pile of mud. Okay, I'll let you have a pile of mud. But where did the mud come from? Oh, well, it's sort of, it was always there, you know. No God. Got to get rid of God. It's just power. And that's why we love the term God. Because the word God just means the powerful one. To say God is love, to say there was a person behind creation, a person who loved and brought you into being because he loved you before you were there, because he willed to love you when you are there. And to think of your beginning, your genesis was in a pile of mud, yes, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit kneel around you, and each one kisses you into life. Now that, you see, 
Your origin is not a monkey. Your your origin is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so I, I don't argue with the evolutionists based on science. I argue based on me, you. Yeah. We, we, we are not the product of power. We are the product of love. Yes. You see. And, and, and right at the genesis, which you read Ephesians 1.4, right there, before the world was, it was a, a full, real human being is one who is consciously united to Christ. We were never intended to be independents. We are those deriving our life. We are those who receive life. And we live in union with God, the Son, the Creator. And that makes us incredible. We are actually participating in God's glory. We're joined to God. We have been from the beginning. You know, we say, we say, I let Jesus into my heart. Well, jolly good. It's a good job. We all started out with him letting you into his heart, you know. Um, we've got to be careful with our words. We, 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 we are those who belong to God. We never were out there up for sale, you know. Who's going to get what? We, we are his, and that's the end of it. And just because the devil steals us, it doesn't mean he owns us. A kidnapper never owns his victim. Lost doesn't mean you've become somebody else's. Lost means that you've left the person you belong to, you're out of your place, and somebody's looking for you. The owner. Yep. Yeah. He, he created us by love. A pile of dust was kissed into life. So it says you are made a little lower than God. Just a tad, just a tad lower than God. But in the New Testament it says that we now participate, we're partaking in the divine nature, which means that we actually participate in deity. And what's deity but love and goodness? In fact, in Ezekiel 28, now, I won't go there because um, that's another thing, but the, most commentators say it describes Satan before he fell. You know, Lucifer, and it says this gorgeous creature of light and there was music coming out of him, and, and they say that was Satan before he fell. Well, Ezekiel didn't say that. He said it was the first human being. Don't ask me how they got from there to Satan, but... What we that's our genesis. Look at yourself in the mirror. That's you. Look just like James is, look in the mirror and see yourself. That's your genesis. Glorious creature, sharing in, participating in the glory of God. And what was sin but turning your back on that? And so what does the scripture say about that turning your back on it? It says you fell short of the glory of God. 
We always thought about that. Sin is the choice to turn your back on and fall short of God's glory because you were created for that. It's, um, what are you left with then? Nothing. That's why the, the one word you'll get out of one who's turned their back is, I am not. And you see, that is why people have broken down and wept when I have pushed them to say, who are you? Because when you, if you don't, if you haven't woken up to that binding glory that you have in Christ, and you're just looking at yourself to see what's there and whom I am, the only word that comes out, I am not, I am not, I cannot, I have not, it's all negative. It's all that's left. And so the scream of the darkness is, if, if I could change where I live, if I get a better car, if I could own this and own that, if I get the ultimate promotion, if I could get another wife or another husband, I'd get a boat, or if I have all the bling. And of course, uh, I don't do that sort of preaching. But if if you talk to such people, they're still empty. They've got it all, maybe emptier than they were before, because now they've run out of, if I could get that, well, you've got that, and there's nothing there. Oh, glory. The worst glory on the planet is the glory of the Pharisee religion. Because that glory, that bling, is all that we put around us. I do this, I do that, I do the other. I thank you, O God, I'm not as other men. <laughs> and then, of course, we compare glory. Um, I do this, you don't do that, I'm more glorious than you. You know? So the Pharisees did. After they went through that list, and they said, "And I, I'm not like him." That was the end of their prayer, you know. But I'm going to say it again: God only knows reality. You've really got to think about it. If Jesus said, "I am the truth," and in the Greek, truth, reality are the same word. Well then, does he recognize everything else that is, is just figments of our imagination? No. So that means he doesn't recognize the darkness because the darkness is just one great big web of lies. That's the glory of the incarnation. That God became flesh, which means broken us. He became broken us and walked in our world of broken us, but he didn't walk in darkness. He said, in fact, I am the light of the world. And if you're in light, you don't see darkness. Have you noticed that? So he didn't see the darkness. And while we are all intent upon the darkness, upon whatever lie it is, and we're killing each other and we're hating each other because of something that we want in the darkness, he walks right into the middle of it and doesn't see it and says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Do you see? Do you see? 
And the gospel, the gospel of love is the initiative of the Holy Trinity to restore us to the original intention. So if you say it's to forgive our sins, you've stopped too short. The intention, that original, the genesis you see in that mirror is to restore us to the original intention, which is that we shall be consciously, through Christ, in Christ, in the Holy Spirit, we shall be consciously members of the family of the Holy Trinity. That's the goal. Oh, P.S., we had to deal with sin first. But don't stop there, you see. Don't stop. Or as I said the other week, we're the lost coin. But when we rolled away among the spiders and the mice and the cracks, we didn't lose our value. If you're a $100 bill and you sink to the bottom of the Pacific, oh, you're still a $100 bill. Very much lost and no longer in circulation, but your value hasn't changed. You know, our value and see. What was the glory of the sheep? The glory of the sheep was the shepherd came to find me. Wow. I must have some value. When I was asked in the wilderness, the shepherd came to find me. He placed a value on me. I was worth his risking his life to come and get me. I must have tremendous value. Translate to the incarnation. God joined the human race to find you. That places, it bestows a tremendous value upon you. The glory of the younger brother when he comes home. What was his glory? He came home with a mouth full of lies, which the father didn't hear or relate to or believe in. He just cut right through and says, you are my son. That was his glory that the father had bestowed upon him in spite of how he saw himself. Yeah. (laughs) In another place which we could have gone to, um, David said, you are my glory. Do you remember that? When Absalom, his own boy, was coming to kill him, and the whole of the the city of Jerusalem had actually evicted him. He was on the run, and on the top of Mount Olivet, he said, You are my glory, right? Psalm 3. But what about Ephesians 2.19 that says, You and I, well, he's actually speaking of human beings. When we say you and I, that sounds as if we're a cult with 20 members. You know, it's... Um, I'm speaking about the incarnation was God joining himself to the human race. The cross dealt with the human race. And he says, now, what, 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 what's the end result? He says, you are the dwelling of God. You, I mean, come on, we're looking in the mirror now. Yeah. I've already said two kinds of people that look. You look in the mirror, it says, you are the dwelling of God through the Spirit. Now, you're either going to say that's too good to be true and go away as if you'd never looked in the mirror, 
or pull yourself to a stop and say, then everything has got to change. If I see myself who I am. Ephesians 3 says, you are filled with the fullness of God. That is, he said, the fullness of agape lives in you. 1 Corinthians 6 says, you are the dwelling, the temple of the Holy Spirit, which says the temple in Jerusalem has forever been canceled because now the place where the glory of God lived is you. Again, I have to think about that with the Holy Spirit being my tutor. And then Colossians 1, it says, Christ inside of you is the hope of glory. It says in Colossians 3 that that your, your life is hidden with Christ in God, which means the world system can look at you and wonder who you are, where you're coming from, how you can think like this, speak like this, behave like this, because there's nothing they can see that would suggest that. No, because your life is hidden with Christ in God. And he goes on and says, when he shall appear, you also shall appear with him in glory. And that's not the second coming. That is walking through H-E-B. It is at your desk in the office. It's your neighborhood. When you are in sync with what the Holy Spirit is doing, and they see a revelation of Jesus in you. He has appeared, but he can't appear without you. And so Romans 8 says, and it just gives the whole mass of salvation, he says that you were justified or declared completely undone from sin. But it go, and right through it goes the whole thing. And at the end he says, and you were glorified, which fits in with what Jesus said in, in John's Gospel, chapter 17. He's praying to the Father. He says, I, I'm giving them my glory. But there you have it. You see, you're, you're so united. You now participate in his glory. And so you were brought to reality. Reality because that's why you were here in the beginning. You finally caught up with your meaning to life. <laughs> reality. You, you've been brought, he says, you, you came out of darkness into his most glorious, wonderful life. Mm-hmm. Out of the darkness, out of that network of lies, yeah. unreality, full of the latest thing that hits your imagination out of the empty, out of the nothing, out of the incomplete, out of the I am not, into we wake up. We wake up. That can be a sort of harmless way. I say harmless only from observing. It's still walking in death. But the harm, what I was going to say, harmless, people live their resume over and over and over again. That is, when when you're around 17, 20 years old, that's about it. You don't live anymore. You just repeat. You're going around in in an endless circle of repeating your resume. You're doing the same thing every day. You go to work to earn the money to buy the bread. 
to give you the strength to go to work, to earn the money, to buy the bread. Da 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 da. You know, like a gerbil on a. Well, you're dead. Walking now, a very harmless sort of person. You you don't impress anybody. But you're dead. Dead while you live. And then there's the religious who are walking in a nightmare. Um, fantasies. It's the world of dementia. Where I don't even know my father. I don't know who I am. I don't know anything. Only in religion, of course, you're applauded for that. But he says, Awake thou that sleepest, rise from the dead. And so David does just that. As he contemplates his situation, he says, My heart is steadfast. I'm not going there. My heart is steadfast. I will sing. I will sing praises. Awake my glory. Awake my heart. Let's get on with this. I guess I'm saying that to you here. Awake. Give yourself a shake. Come back. Come back to what metanoia has shown you. Amen. Back to reality. And notice never in any of the Psalms does he ask God to make that happen. Exactly. <clears throat> you know, it's happened, he just forgot. Mm-hmm. It's happened, he just let circumstances halfway drown him. But it, he never can, oh God, please, you know. He never in that sense invites God into his life. He assumes God is there. Mm-hmm. When he can't feel God sometimes, You remember, he says, where are you? You know, but that's good because he's talking to God. He knows he's there. I just can't feel you. I'm I'm getting tired of that. So would you? (laughs) But think, think about it. How much time the 21st century church spends in asking God to be who he already is. And worse than that, asking him to do what he's already done. Asking that you somehow get somewhere where the truth is you're already sitting there asking to get there um you think about it um i I, i've been in 70 years i've been to a lot of prayer meetings they spend much of the time to begin with groveling as if jesus never died have you noticed how they relate to the old testament many times many times um, because there's no sense of the finished work of Christ. And so I'm unworthy, I'm no good, we repent, we repent, we repent. And then the prayer requests are asking God to do what he's done, yeah. Yeah. which usually is the work of the Holy Spirit, and they've already told the Holy Spirit to get lost because he doesn't belong after 500 AD. And so, and so it goes on. Sad. Whereas in the middle of this, it is saying, you know, with a shout of praise, we declare my glory. And so, we're never defined by a situation. That's not who I am. Even the way we talk about it, my feelings are not me. 
Now, that's easy to say, but we say it all the time. You say, I feel. We actually say those words. I feel whatever. Well, just a minute. Who's I and who's feel? Because you just said, I, I, then had a feeling. So if you had it, it can't be I. Do you follow me? If I have a feeling, that's the way I understand it. My body knows that. So the body suggests those words to me. I feel, well then, I is separate from the feeling. But on this occasion, the feeling has overwhelmed I, and so I say I feel. But I could never say that I is the feeling. Okay, God bless your half nod. Um, put it like this. Some, many, 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 many things are mine. I, I can't avoid saying it. But it's not me. There's a difference between mine and me. I experience many things, and I would be foolish to say I didn't experience them. I, in that sense, I have to acknowledge it's mine, it's part of my history, it happened to me. But you see, it happened to me. Because that's not me. And our problem is, we continually, we look in the mirror and mix up what we see with how we feel and what is happening to us. And we say, what is happening to us is real. No, that's real. And when you see that you are the glory of God in Christ, it's amazing how you interpret what's happening to you totally differently. And you will realize that when we report on some of the bad things that happen, we are not reporting on the bad things that happen. We are reporting on the state of my own heart. That's how I see it. And I report it to you as real. But when I have a new vision and understanding, I don't report it like that because I don't see it like that. Did you get it? I'm yeah. tripping over my own tongue here. It's, but it, this is what we're talking about. Here is a man reporting under the worst circumstances possible. And he interprets it. You, you could be in it. Well, go back to the... the two scouts and the third, ten scouts, you know, the, they went in. Both, all of them saw the same thing. I mean, understand this, all of them saw the same thing. They all saw, well, actually they saw three families of those who might be called giants, which in the Hebrew actually is the word, it's for bully, or tyrants. Um, it just means a very big, nasty man. Um, Goliath was one of them, much later on. But when they went in to the land, do, do you all know the story I'm talking about? Um, when they went into the land, it reports, when they were just simply reporting, that they came on this area, which is a little tiny area, at the base of... 
Canaan, called Hebron. And around that area, there was um, an, a big nasty fellow called Anak. And he had three sons who now had become three big nasty men and um, had a nasty family. But that was it. Now they move all the way through the land. And it's just people. But they had seen these gigantic creatures and they had been mesmerized, terrified. And when they stood up against them, they said, I felt like a grasshopper. And if I, if I felt like a grasshopper, they, they know I'm a grasshopper. I know that. And when they went back to report, they said, the land was full of these gigantic... No, it wasn't. They've already reported that there were three families. But they were so held in terror that they made now an identification. They said, my identity is defined by the size of those men. So it doesn't matter what else. I know I've forgotten it right now because my identity is defined by the size of those men. And they said, I feel like a grasshopper. And because I feel like it and because they are big, I am a grasshopper. And I know if I know I'm a grasshopper, they know I'm a grasshopper. Lies, 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 lies. Because in actual fact, if you go on into Joshua, it tells us what those guys were thinking, those gigantic men. They reported, they're unashamed to report it. They said our hearts melted them us for fear. We said we were scared spitless of you because we heard what happened in Egypt and we heard how you came through the Red Sea and we heard. And when you showed up on our doorstep, we said, it's over. Someone find the white flag. We're going out to surrender. And while they're talking surrender, the ten are saying, we're grasshoppers, we're getting out of here. Lies. Now, Caleb and Joshua saw exactly the same thing. They were there. They saw the size of the people. They saw everything. Only they didn't. When they came back to report... The ten didn't even mention God. They only mentioned the size of the giants. When Caleb reported, he didn't mention the giants. He just says, the Lord is with us, let's go for it. Do you see what I mean? We report and we say, that's the truth. No, it isn't. It's how you saw it. It's how you saw it. That's why, um, you know, when police call for witnesses, if everybody says exactly the same thing, they don't believe them because it's it, we're, we're, a reality is very hard to find. What is reality? Because everybody reports yeah. what they see and call that reality. Mm-hmm. But it isn't. Mm-hmm. You are not defined by the situation. Even if it's glittering with bling. You you might have reached the top and now have all the fame and what the world calls glory. Don't be fooled. That's part of the lie too. If I think that is my glory. 
So it doesn't matter which end you're at, if you're saying, if only I had that, or if you announce, I've got that, doesn't make any difference, because that is not glory. That's all part of the lie. God doesn't see it. I mean, this is reality. (laughs) I think you got the message. Father, thank you. Thank you for who we are in Christ. Thank you that we speak absolute final reality. For in your sight, we participate in the glory of Christ who is your beloved. And thank you that by your grace we see ourselves as you see us. And we thank you, the truth is, that the whole of the darkness sees us as you see us. And they're terrified. For they know that when you rose from the dead, Lord Jesus, that was the end of them. So bring us to live in that peace. Bring us to live shouting into the anxieties of life that we are participants in your glory. Into your hands we commend ourselves, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.